Hey guys, I am so excited to welcome our guest today. His name is Joe Murdy. And as a combat veteran and survivor of traumatic brain injury, Joe has unique insights into the tools and techniques that can help with recovery. In this episode, he's going to share tips and tricks for staying focused, staying positive, and moving forward after trauma. In this episode, we're going to discuss the challenges that Joe has faced as a man and what it means to be a man in today's society and how he's come out stronger after adversity. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Manthropology. Throw off the shackles of conformity and embrace your true self. Now, take it away, Kelly. Thanks, Max. Welcome to the show, Joe Murdy. Hi, nice to meet you, Kelly. Yeah, nice to meet you. And thank you so much for coming on. I've heard your story. I heard you on another podcast. Tell me the name of it again, Positively. Positively Stubborn. And that's with Craig and Nora. Craig and I deployed to um, Afghanistan together. Uh, He was our human intelligence officer, essentially, um, that was attached uh, to my company um of reconnaissance marines and uh, we got to know each other really really well um and really became tight-knit over this dog fred and fred is is a big part of this of my story my journey i can't really talk about my life without having fred and craig in it um and we can dive more into that and then nora is his lovely lovely wife um she is a former uh singer with the parkington sisters and yes this is my shout out for them too okay we'll link to them in the show notes <laughs> yeah um and they've got a great kind of a folk sounding uh band um she no longer performs with them but the sisters are still out there performing strong and just incredible people they have, you know, Fred and Ruby. You'd think they're engaged uh, to my dog, Broski. And we've just remained really tight throughout the years. That's so awesome. Okay. So yes, I did hear that. And so we're going to get into Fred. We're going to get into all of that. But I want to start back how you grew up a little bit. So you're a native of the Denver area. Is that right? Yeah. Which, uh, you know, there's a joke in Colorado that natives are are rare. It's definitely become one of those more transient states. A lot of people coming here, I think, with um, more technology companies and just industries moving here. You know, Colorado for a long time was a um, jokingly an oil and gas cow town uh, up against the Rockies. And uh, that boom and bust cycle to, you know, really getting that flattened out. There was a big push to bring companies in. It's continued. So with that huge influx of out-of-staters and um, natives are a joke. But yeah, I grew up here in Colorado doing the Colorado things, skiing, hiking were, you know, kind of what I did growing up. It's beautiful. And I know all about the non-natives. That's my family. (laughs) We're all from Iowa, but some of them migrated out that direction. I'll be flying out there tonight, actually. So I'm super excited. And I hope I can meet you in person while I'm out there. So that'd be great. That'd be great. We'll have a beer. (laughs) But so native to Colorado, I heard a little bit about your, your story. It sounded like you started college maybe wasn't for you. You had a little too much fun or something, maybe, right? A little too much fun. And did you end up going into the Marines after deciding that wasn't wasn't your time? 
the way I would put it, you know, I grew up and, and you'll know this too, the generation that saw September 11th happen. Um, and I was 16 when that happened. And I think at that point that stirred something in me. Um, I don't, I don't know how to fully explain that, but there was just this calling. I suddenly felt this calling. School was never my thing. Um, I think grow up, call it what it is, ADHD or, or whatever, but school just wasn't my thing. What was your thing? Sports. Yeah, sports. That's what I thought. <laughs> Growing up, I chasing girls. The normal, everything but education was important to me. So not necessarily the most focused guy in school. And went to college, you know, kind of the urging of my family, very tight-knit, close family, probably what you consider traditional nuclear conservative Catholic family. I remember going to the maid to be like, I'm an enlist. Yeah, right. <laughs> and definitely one of those families where you listen to what your parents say, lest your mom pull out the wooden spoon and find your knuckles on the uh, <laughs> on counter countertops. <laughs> we kind of decided, and they say we, because it was not just my own decision, to pursue college. Got there. I was a mess. Oh, my God. As I like to say, really good at college, terrible at the education. So we're going to say very up and down grades. Um, until I eventually was kindly asked by the university to go reflect deeply on my life and come back in a year when I was ready. And at that point, I just made the decision. I had a buddy at the time that had enlisted, and I was like, "I, this is what I want to do. And me continuing to fight this is not going to yield anything. So I enlisted, you know, looked at the branches, but, you know, was drawn to the Marine Corps, Uniform always get you with the uniform, and I enlisted to become at the time there was a contract to be a reconnaissance marine. Which until they stood up, MARSOC, uh, Marine Special Operations Command, formerly was kind of the special operations branch of the Marine Corps. It just served the Marine Corps though, as opposed to national interests. Mm -hmm. um, so I went through boot camp SOI, which is School of Infantry, and then off to. Pre-BRC and, and BRC, which is basic reconnaissance course, where you learn your MOS or job, and made it through that end of 2007 and reported to 1st Reconnaissance Battalion. And, you know, kind of the rest is history from, from there, which is all in California. I, I was pretty spoiled. I was out on the West Coast. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. Yeah. A little break from Colorado. What was basic training like? Was that like a big eye-opening experience were you like, oh shit, what have I done? Did I really want this? <laughs> there was a lot of tears. Imagine, and I turned 22 in boot camp. So I was older. You were older, a lot older. Yeah. Okay. So my brother was in the Air Force. He went when he was 17. My parents had to like sign for him to go. It's weird. Um, no, it was eye opening. I think good explanation of what Denver is. And you've been here. I mean, it's not the most diverse city. So report to boot camp. And I grew up pretty private school, pretty, uh, pretty privileged is probably the best. A little sheltered, very sheltered. And that's fine. That's part of how I grew up. I get to boot camp and big first experiences with diversity, really meeting people from all sorts of backgrounds you have, you know, and despite the there's a lot of stereotypes around the military. Not everyone's from a broken home. Not everyone's a failure. You know, it's actually truly a melting pot of diversity. It was great. I mean, I really suddenly got to see all these different perspectives, meet 
interesting people um, start accumulating tattoos, which I have covered up by the shirt. And it's one of those things where it becomes this truly remarkable place where, you know, and the military is good at this, especially the Marine Corps. Um, when you look across the services, the Marine Corps is just a little different. Uh, I think it's why if you look at the recruiting crises that are going on. It's like, why does the Marine Corps not have a crisis? It's because the identity there is Marine and you really grow into that. Like I said, it's a painful process physically and mentally, <laughs> but you get there. So, yeah. So you were deployed how many times? Twice. Twice. Okay. So how'd that process happen? Were you excited? Were you like, let's fucking go? I would like to say in my naivety, you're very excited for it. I mean, the way I always compare it, especially for infantry units is you've gone there to do one thing. When you join an infantry unit, you're like, I've joined a fight. So it's like being a pro athlete. If you train, 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 it's just practice all the time. So deployment rolls around. It's like you get amped. So my first deployment was to Iraq and that was mid 2008 through um, started 2009. And it was pretty quiet there. We were drawing down. Um, we, Ended up as a unit working in the northern part of Iraq towards uh, the Sinjar mountain range. And that is later made famous in 2015 by ISIS. That's where they chased the Yazidis and really started propagating the massacres. We were supposed to be interdicting what was probably the pre-runner to ISIS up there. There just wasn't a lot going on. So it ended up being more of a humanitarian deployment, but, you know, cut my teeth <laughs> living in the desert, living in the dirt, learning how to kind of operate in that sort of environment. As, uh, you know, really grew into the role, came back from that and was told, hey, you're going to go to Afghanistan next. I think there was a little bit more, I don't want to call it fear, but mm -hmm. there was definitely nerves. I mean, everything you'd been hearing about Afghanistan was it was extremely kinetic Units were going over there and suffering extremely high casualty sure. rates, which is a reality of the job. You're not signing up for the infantry or special operations or reconnaissance or ranger, you know, all these different really um, well-known units to be like, yeah, I'm going to avoid this. Like, that's reality. So the training really amped up. Before you went, the training amped up. What did you guys do to get ready? So you spend about a year uh, prepping for seven-month rotations um, on the Marine Corps side. Uh, training for us consists of, so reconnaissance is, you know, it's in the name. Um, information gathering to be converted to intelligence uh, is one of the big things. Battlefield space uh, shaping, what we like to say. As we train for that, that's a lot of what we do. It's called green side. It's carrying, the best way to put it, carrying a really, really heavy ruck through some of the most arduous terrain in the world, moving to find and locate the enemy and identify, you know, key, you know, infrastructure, units, equipment, capabilities for follow-on type missions. That's supposed to be our primary mission. The other mission is kind of this advanced infantry role, what everyone loves to see in the movies, which is the guys sitting on helicopters, flying in and, you know, taking a house down or getting in gunfights. And that, while that exists, like, as we like to joke about, you know, you can teach the monkeys to do that. There's a real art form to the green side, blending in, hiding, especially in foreign countries that we really took privilege in. So 
mountain warfare, desert warfare, um, learning how to operate vehicles, maintain vehicles, survival, all sorts of different sort of training modules. Just anything that could come your way, possibly. Exactly. So then you went to Afghanistan. How long were you there? It was a seven-month rotation. Um, So we got there in May, just in time for it to start getting really hot. Um, in the part of Afghanistan, we're towards Southern Afghanistan, Helmand province. And the first thing we joined up was, um, kind of the cleanup operations around a main, I'm going to call it a city. It's a town by all standards of Marja and the desert running into that. So we wanted to interdict Taliban reinforcements equipment going into the city to continue this fight. So, um, that area is called Triknawa. So the first part of our deployment was literally to go out and find the enemy. And, you know, I'll never forget this. Iraq, we drove around for four months, no real trace of anything. We land in a helicopter, the sun comes up and we're getting shot at in Afghanistan. So huge, huge difference in deployments right off the bat, moving uh, right into an engagement and, and truly a different sort of battlefield Mm -hmm. uh, that we were exposed to. So we spent the first half of deployment there, really earned quite the reputation with the Taliban and with with other coalition units as being extremely effective. So we were tasked then with moving up into the Sangin River Valley. And um, the Sangin River Valley is the primary narcotics hub of um, all of Afghanistan. So everyone knows, obviously, opium is a huge thing that comes out of Afghanistan. Same with weed. I actually did not know that. A lot of financing for the Taliban came out of uh, illegal drug trade. So, I mean, you'd be patrolling and, you know, here in the U.S., it's what a big deal that we're legalizing marijuana. But, you know, Afghan Kush is a well-known strain in the community. And you would walk through fields of it like wheat like you'd just be walking along and be like what is that it smells like a sky oh yeah that's big big old weed nut. interesting okay yeah um and then the other thing is opium so mm-hmm. um most of the drug trade goes through this uh valley called Sangin, and it's a river valley it's extremely green in the middle of the desert but it's also one of the few areas in afghanistan that was probably more of a quote-unquote traditional battlefield there was a a line of advance, which means on one side's the enemy, on the other side is us. The British had tried to hold it years before and been unsuccessful, suffered extremely heavy casualties. It's just the way the river valley is laid out. It's really tough to, to operate in. We had been starting to get in fights up there and the decision from central command at the point trickling down was we need to take Sangin and try and break this drug trade's back. So as effective as we had been, basically, uh, we were told, all right, um, at the time. So there was Bravo Company, Charlie Company, which is a company is about 70 Marines and their commanding officers attachments. And then Delta, which we was the force company, um, but they had ridden along as a attachment to Charlie. Why is there no Alpha? They were on what's called a Mew, the boats, like what's going to the Mediterranean that everyone's reading that they'll be a part of that okay. operation. Okay. So, and that's traditionally how reconnaissance Marines operated was off yeah. boats, but given the war on terror, we had done a shift. So alpha was okay. always new company. And then Charlie Bravo 
um, and force took over kind of the land-based um, warfare. Okay, got it. Um, Kelly, I'm going to step in for a second, let you know that we need to take a little ad break, okay? All right, thank you. And now, back to the show. We were told you're going in. And Sangin up to that point had seen something like a 50% casualty rate. Units were just not going up there and and it being a nice place to operate. Like it was heavy fighting, brutal area to be in. So that like struck me so hard when you said that in the other podcast you were on 50% casualty rate. You had to be skate. I mean, I know you're a Marine, you're tough, you know, but you had to be so scared. Were you scared? It's tough to describe. I mean, if no one is not scared, I hate to say it. Like you are very abjectly aware of your mortality going into these places, but at the same time, it's weird. It's, it's the job. So you just learn to set it aside. So you start getting the metallic taste in your mouth and things like that. That's what fear tastes like, but you just learn to live with it. You prepare for these things knowing like, Hey, I may or may not be here. Let's hope that it's quick if something happens. Yeah. You you just have to set it aside. It's the job and and that's just it. So, you know, we came up with our game plan, um, which was going to be a helo insert right into the heart of the valley, about two kilometers north of that line of advancement. We wanted to get in behind enemy lines. They were going to know we were there, but this was the first time we were told legitimately like, hey, you're not going there to like gain information. The information you're gaining is where's the enemy and you're fighting them. Like yeah. the, the command was very straightforward with that. So we landed. It was an adventurous landing. We actually hit a transformer on the way in. So sparks out the back of the helicopter. I thought we had been shot down. Oh. It was one of those moments where all like, oh, great. Black Hawk down. Here we go. Yeah. But turns out we just cut some power lines and got lucky on it. Did that like give them your location or were you trying to be more stealthy than that? Or Oh, no, you can't hide it. We flew it in these CH-53s, which if you look them up are these, I mean, it's called the Super Stallion. It is a humongous, the helicopter is probably as big as my basement. It's it's huge. I mean, yeah, it's just a So it's like, here we are. Here we are. You know where we are. And as soon as we landed and, um, disembarked like we could hear them because we could intercept their radios we could hear them talking oh god you know they knew right where we were they also know we own the night you know we have night vision we have thermal so they're not going to do anything at night but what they were starting to coordinate i mean the more we landed is here they are we've got eyes we're watching them move which is eerie to hear right like yeah transit like hey they're watching us right now it's like awesome i can't see that so, but they're speaking another language. You have interpreters or like, how does that work? You have an interpreter with you. Okay. You know, they watched us move up. We took a house on a higher point because we knew we needed to defend it and dug in like we had done so many times before and just prepared for what was going to be the fight the next day. And that's pretty much how we operated was firm, you know, firm up, get into a fighting position and then observe and try and catch them making the first move and engage from then on. Yeah. So you were in the middle of this whole thing when this terrible thing happened to you. Yes. So it was daytime, nighttime, set the scene. 
So the firm base, the home that we had decided to take was on a hill overlooking the valley. Traditionally, units had had a lot of issues with trying to engage in the valley, which if you're looking down this, it's a river valley, it's lush, it's green. It's also very gridded because the U.S. brought agriculture to Afghanistan post-Soviet war. Yeah. So it's all these like perfect grids. I mean, you're from Iowa, right? Like you, yeah. you know what they look like. They might be circles, they might be squares, but you have all these irrigation canals, which are super deep. And then there's walls and the walls there are bulletproof. They're actually super thick mud walls. Oh. So it's really tough to move through. It's perfect defensive territory. And then they can lay IEDs really, really quick. It improvised explosive devices to cause casualties, slow you up, ambush you. As we prepared to move through, we just looked there like, let's take a really defensive position and force them to come to us was the idea. Like flip the strategy on its head. And in the morning, you could hear it because you'd see all the women and children leaving. We saw hundreds of vehicles moving in with men on the back. We knew they were coming. Women and children were leaving. They, they give them a heads up, right? Get all the women and children. They do actually yeah. give them a heads up. Unlike certain parts of the world, they yeah. they actually fight you generally and excuse the expression, man to man. And that was something I could actually respect about the Taliban and the Chechnyans and all the foreign fighters there is they're like, we're going to fight you. Yeah. And we're not going to hide behind human shields. Yeah. And we just prepared for it. We listened all morning and you could hear them. They're like, they're not leaving the compound. They're not leaving the compound. So they had moved into, I think, ambush positions, realized they're not going to move out. So then they start reorganizing, which is, okay, let's start moving. And it, that yeah. starts at about 830 in the morning. We, we hear this. It goes just eerie quiet for about an hour. And my shift was going to end at 10 a.m. I was doing one last scan at like 9.55. And the sandbag that I had that I was resting my binos on just explodes. And then all hell breaks loose. They open up. I don't know what the real numbers are. There is estimates that we've heard that day of anywhere from... 250 to 400 fighters were being engaged. And there were like 70 of you? In a compound, there might be 70, but the number of quote-unquote guns you can actually point outwards and engage with might be 10 tops. Oh, wow. So you have 10 people fighting, coordinating maybe a mortar and air. But it's, it's very few first a lot. Yeah. The worst was when you were off post because you were just sitting there like, well, I can't do anything. Like, what do I do? Yeah. What do I do? My post was built, and this was an oversight on my part, elevated, and there was two firing posts. I'm going to just use my hands. This one was a little bit higher and better protected. Mine was not only lower, but it also was forward a little bit. So inadvertently, I could be engaged from about a 270 degree circle. That's where all the fire went. They really worked us, pinned us down, which is a scary feeling, but you don't deal with it. You're going to die. So it becomes this, hey, you're in the fight, whether you think it or not. So me and the guy I was with would um, one, two, three, talk up, take some shots, try and observe, help direct fire. 
And we were doing this. I'll never forget. I remember looking at my buddy and I'm like, I, I'm about to get shot. And talk about manifesting bad luck. How that just gave me goosebumps. <laughs> and I just remember looking at him and being like, fuck. <clears throat> Excuse me. Choking up. And um and I remember looking at him being like, here we go. You know, one, two, three came up, engaged. They had an element maneuvering because we were actually guarding kind of the way up to our tour. <laughs> so it's like <laughs> we have to protect this area. I remember hearing a loud sound and then nothing. Just black. Black. I woke up seven minutes later on my back and again, Black Hawk Down reference, but it, you know, that scene where the guy gets blown up and he's like, and bells are ringing and he's like, what? That's how it felt. Like, I just remember waking up, I'm looking straight up in the air and my buddy's like yelling my name. I can't hear anything, but he's, I can see his mouth moving. And then he's like rubbing my chest and, and I'm like coming to and then, of course, I hear you, lucky mother. You know, I'm like, what the, f-? you know, like, what the fuck's going on? We need to get in the fight. He's like, no, no, you've been shot. Like, so of course, hearing that, like, where, you know, like, where's the hole? Yeah. <laughs> He's like, no, we're getting you off the post. Which, if you listen to the other thing, I tried to crawl down this ladder off this post, um, face first. That didn't work. It's clearly not all there. And I get down and get walked over. To medical and of course i'm like waiting for them to be like you're bleeding from here and they hand me my helmet and there's a hole in my helmet and i'm like you've got to be what the f <laughs> like what's going on and they're like you got shot in the head and i just was so out of it I, you know i don't think it didn't hit me i was probably in shock and this fight's raging this is only seven minutes later. The shit is still going down right in the middle of it. Yeah. 15, 15 minutes into the fight. Yeah. And there's nothing you can do. I mean, that's part of it. So I'm just sitting there like, okay. So I go through this whole neurological assessment. Can't, you know, no standing. Can't remember a number past like five. Not good. <laughs> and I'm just listening to this fight go on. You know, it was that for three or four days. It just sucked. My head hurt. Ears ringing. Three or four days. Yeah, we we ended up kind of in a big engagement with them. You know, it stopped at night, <laughs> but during the day. This thing went on for three or four days. They really wanted to dislodge us. 90% of the drug trade, over 90% flowed through this. So they knew if we got a foothold, what was coming. So they, they really wanted to dislodge us from this spot. What eventually caused it to taper off is another infantry unit started to move up the valley because that was always the idea, kind of a pincher movement. They went and it was bad. They obliterated that unit. They lost like 40 men in the span of a week, which is a lot. Oh, my God. It's memorialized. You can look it up. Three, five, dark horse, just horrible casualties. We ended up being able to count something like over 200 that we killed in our three or four days. So they had a lot of people to throw, but they finally just went, we're going to leave these guys on the hill alone because they're not doing anything. 
which was the first stage is like, we just wanted to get to equilibrium so that we could start doing missions. We basically broke their back right there. And I, I was stuck in this compound for a week because so dangerous to try and bring in a helicopter. And I was not at that point. I wasn't stable, but I wasn't unstable. Like I wasn't, my life wasn't threatened. I just was not, (laughs) but I wasn't also, you know, getting evac anytime soon. So after that, so three or four days go by, when do you meet Fred? Is it during this time? Much right away. Um, They put me in a, hi Bella. Did you hear Fred? Uh, (laughs) They put me in a room. Um, the rice room, the infamous rice room. And Fred was just this little puppy, we think about six months that was in this home. And most of the Afghan dogs were not nice dogs. You know, they're, they're wild, they're feral, they're farm dogs. This guy just kind of wanders in and would curl up with me, almost like checking in on me. He was doing the same thing with the rest of the company. And we just kind of were like, this is a really, really cool dog. And me and Craig, Craig would check and started talking. We're like, dude, we need to get this dog out of here. Like, this is a cool dog. So that gave the whole, and I'll leave that for, you know, people should go listen to that podcast to kind of operation rescue Fred. Definitely. Yes. But yeah, he just, you know, would check in on me, which gave me a lot of uh, support and more empathy for dogs. Really from there, just kind of led to the whole, like, let's get Fred out of here. Yeah. Uh, and I eventually, you know, after a week was evac'd out of that place. And so you were evac'd after about a week or so. Where did you go then? Where did they take you then? To the primary uh, base in the area, which was Leatherneck slash Bastion. Bastion was the British side. Leatherneck was the American side. Did the medical, did all my evals, had to go take a bunch of concussion tests until I could pass the concussion tests. So you obviously had a concussion. Badly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to put it mildly. Traumatic brain injury would, is yes. probably the better way to put it. Got uh, it. Okay. But went through that and eventually, you know, was able to pass the test, which isn't hard. They're just memory tests. So eventually you kind of figure it out. So once I got cleared, it was like, okay, you're going to go back out with your unit. So went back out again after that, three weeks later. Wow. Were you shaken up? How did you muster up the, or did you want it? Were you like ready to go? Were you like, it's like football or any sport, like anyone that's played sports and is competitive. I mean, yeah, I was, you're shaken up. I I can't sit here and be like, Oh, like one more millimeter to the right. And I'm lobotomized. Like I'm not here, but that's your team. Those are your, your men and your women. and, And you're just like, I'm, I'm getting back out there. Like F you doctor, like clear me. That's the mindset. So it was, for me, it was a game. Like, how could I figure out these tests to say like, oh, I'm neurocognitively capable. Was I really? Probably not. But I'm not going to let these men that I've trained and been around and been in gunfights with do this without me. And that's not an ego thing. It's not, I'm I'm better than anyone or they're better off with me there. It's it's who you're with. It's your team. It, those are your guys. Yeah. You want to be out there with them. Yeah. It's your ride or die, literally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's get out there, get back out there. On post, they joked, they watched me our next gunfight. Like your head, you definitely move a little bit more than I think before. I, I probably got a little complacent, but right back into it, right back into the fight, engaging immediately. And it was not, you know, and that was something I really 
give credit to my platoon sergeant for is he was not going to let me, he put me right back on post. You know, he was like, look, dude, if you don't do this, you're going to get gun shy and you can't do your job if you're gun shy. So it's get up there and prove that you can still be here. And that's how life is in general. So it's just get up there, do it. And that's how it worked out. So we did that. And then it was time to head back home. So <laughs> came back after that. If you watch groups of people, people that go through really awful things. So challenging things together. And I think you see these in like corporate events, like let's go to, and people don't understand. That's like, if you go through challenging things together, it forms bonds, even if you can't stand. I mean, there's guys that I did not get along with, but because of what I experienced with them, there's definitely this, like, I permanently bonded to them, you know, like I would do anything for them. Well, you hate them. Yeah. But I would totally go to war with them, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. Yes. So Very strong bond. I think that's where that really comes from. Yeah. Okay. So how much longer were you in Afghanistan before coming back to the States then after that? About a month and a half. We were back for Christmas. Oh, okay. Came back to the States. At the time I was re-enlisted to go over to the, and been invited to go over to the force unit, which was kind of a step up, a believed step up. But uh, TBIs were a thing at this point, you know, the movie concussion and all this. And, uh, get a call from the monitor and was like, you are going to dive school. Um, and there's nothing you can do about it. Once you've signed on the dotted line, welcome to when the government owns you. So I was told go down to Florida. So I spent down four years in Panama city beach and taught diving to special operators, reconnaissance Marines and Navy uh, special operators, the corpsmen who are doctors that uh, go out into the field with us, how to dive. And at the end of that, it was finally time to go back to school <laughs> after all that. And I know we're moving yeah. things quickly here, but it was fun. It's only like, I think it's, re- I think I'm ready to go finish my education. I think I'm ready to go live life outside. Of- yeah. You learned so much when you were in the Marines. I'm sure you grew up a lot. So it was time for the next step. So. And, and it is, it's, it's weird. That's a good way of putting it. It was just time to move on. Yeah. So you went to school, you got your bachelor's degree and your MBA. Were those back to back? No, not back to back. I did do three and a half, almost four years at one company and kind of hit my real, we're going to just say break ceiling um, (laughs) of like, uh, to move up, I'm going to need something. And I just kind of looked around. It was time to move on. So I went back, did my master's um, at that time, um, and then kind of just have gone forward from there and really, you know, looking forward to these next steps in life. Where is it going to take me? Uh, This seems like a pretty good place to hear from our sponsors. And now back to the show. How was it transitioning from military life? back into civilian life. It's challenging. I think something that people don't realize the military is the ultimate socialized structure, right? Like you wake up, you have no worries. You have medical, you have food, even if it's crappy, Um, even if it's, but it's, you have all these things just available to you. You're going to have a regimented schedule. Your job is now take this for what it is easy in that. I know exactly what I have to 
do to be really good at my job. I know there's clear expectations. I'm literally mimicking someone a step up from me if I find them to be a good leader or not, but within the context of what are these really tight constraints on my work that makes me excellent at it, right? So it's a really narrow lens that you get to approach life with. Coming out of that, you're suddenly in this wide open lens of showing up. You know, I struggled at my first real job. School was one thing. Being 30 years old and being with 18-year-olds is its own thing, but I was able to deal with that. Corporate was totally different because in the military, if you do your job well, if you take your tests, do all your leadership courses, do all this, you're going to get promoted <laughs> and time too, like and you meet time and grade. Whereas in corporate, it's suddenly like, here's a super broad scope. Things are loosely defined, what's successful, what's not. And then your politics exists everywhere. They even exist in the military, but, and you have to navigate office politics, which is people might not like you and you could be the excellent worker, but it's never going to work out for you because if that person doesn't like you is in a higher position, you're never going to go anywhere or vice versa. You watch people get promoted and you're like, F and there's a really good diagram. I can't remember the guy that breaks this down, but it's like, if you look at the military and this is the biggest difference, I think units, especially high performing units. So let's say special operations, right? So we're going to say high trust, high capability, right? Are our axes on here. People that exist, you know, everyone wants to be high trust, high capability, right? Like everyone trusts you to do the job. Everyone knows you're capable of doing the job. Great. Low trust, high capability is the worst thing in the world. That's a toxic leader because it's like, yeah, he's super capable, but no one trusts him or her, right? Low, low trust, low capability. No one likes that's consistent, but then high trust, low capability guys at units will take high trust, low capability and go, I, cause that's narrow scope. Cause I know my job so well, I'd rather take this guy that I just trust and we can overcompensate some of that weakness and figure it out because I trust them. Like I know this person will have my back no matter what, but if you look at corporate America, that person is immediately going to be like, "Mm, we like you, but your capabilities aren't great. We really like, because we measure this all the time, super high capability, but this person might be low trust. And that's your toxic leader, right? Like that's the person that's getting promoted. And I am paraphrasing someone else at this point, but it's like, that's that person that's getting promoted, but no one can stand them. That's the person that everyone in the office, like they're awful. Why are they there? Yeah. And it's because they know the politics. They know how to look good. They look capable. But that was probably the toughest thing for me to navigate is like, I have no problem telling that person, like, I don't like you. And I don't care how capable you are. I don't want to work with you. <laughs> Whereas someone that's not as capable, be like, but I trust is going to be like, I'm, I will break my back to, to work for you and help cover up those weaknesses. Let's, how are we symbiotic? How do we pick up those corners? You know, and that's, that's the adage from the military. And that I think is the biggest difference. And it's such a difficult thing to navigate in today's world. It's like, well, we keep promoting toxic because it's like, we can measure capability. Well, how do you measure trust? How do you measure likability and all these sorts of things? It's like, okay, <laughs> this person exists. They may be successful, but no one likes them. So. Yeah. Did you actually tell somebody that where you like, did you actually say, I don't like you? 
Um, I've never said it. Look, <laughs> my politics, I learned how to not say it to someone's face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the military, yeah. yes. I mean, if you don't like someone, yeah. you're like, F off. You're dude. just like, yeah. <laughs> um, or you take it out back, you settle it with your fists, and that's that. Mm. But in corporate, you can't. And it's one of those things where it's, and you read it really quick. I mean, you can tell in a room mm-hmm. when people are like, oh, I don't like being around this person. But yeah, I think it's more, maybe not saying directly to their face, but definitely at times like looking at someone and just being like, no, <laughs> you know, like, I no, just, I, I won't do it. So when you went back to school, you started playing sports yes. and you were in your 30s, like 30-ish. Yeah. So you're playing with younger guys. Yes. But you're holding your own. And some graduate students. So a couple were like 26, 27. So. Okay. How was that? What got you interested? Did you play rugby when you were younger or this was all new? No, actually, I think most people tell you I was kind of contact adverse growing up. Okay. Um, My best friend I played football with, who I've known since I was 10, would tell you that he's like, yeah, Joe was the one with like all the arm pads and didn't want to be hit. That's ironic. Coming out of the military, rewired brain. But it's, um, it was, I think school was easy suddenly, right? Like, oh, I'm going to attend class for four hours. Homework doesn't take me more than an hour. Okay, that's a five-hour day. What do I do with my life? And you're getting paid, you know, your GI Bill. You're getting paid, in my case, I I, I hate it being called disability, but um, I was getting disability. So it was like, okay, I have more than enough that I can focus on finding the career I want. But in the meantime, what do I do with my free time? <laughs> I started like looking around and was like, ah, Rugby, that looks fun and competitive. So I joined the team. And it's a really amazing sport. The World Cup of Rugby is going on right now. Check out um, New Zealand and South Africa this weekend. It's the finals. Are those your t- Who do you like? Do you, you watch it? My, I do. My coach is from England. So I was brought up on Northern Hemisphere style rugby, which is a little bit more brutalizing. Uh <laughs> <laughs> It just was a great sport. Again, it's that you're suffering with other people. You're learning to navigate circumstances. It just gave me a sense of belonging and, you know, really bonded with a couple of the older guys on the team. Um, but the younger guys would come to me for advice and like, like girl advice and stuff like that. Girl advice, drinking advice, like life <laughs> in general. Cause I was, I mean, I was as old as someone's almost as old enough to be some of these kids' dads. So it was (laughs) interesting to say the least, but at the same time really gave me this full sense of belonging. Which is so important for guys. I mean, I'm hearing from you. I mean, you were in the military, you've got your rugby team, all these like brotherhoods. I feel like that's so important, such an important relationship for a man to be around other men in that way, teamwork, you know, teams, things like that. Teamwork teams, I think the biggest thing for men, and I, and it's interesting, right? Especially with today. And I, I think this is coming back to your question earlier. You know, what did I learn? And the biggest thing, when you look at society, right? And we have all this, everyone needs to be loved and cared for and heard and safe spaces and all this. It's like, no. Participation prizes. Yeah, you don't grow. I mean, you need adversity to grow. And you need to learn how to respond to adversity, not by shouting someone down or like, I just disagree with you and F you and I'm never going to 
do anything and blah, blah, blah. And then start shrieking in a corner. Like that doesn't do anything like engaging with someone that has different thoughts and engaging with different thought processes is important. Learning how to do that and feel, I think for men, the most important thing is to feel capable. It's that I need to feel capable of solving the problems in front of me. I need to feel capable of being in the relationship I'm in and making it the best possible relationship um, available to both me and that person. I need to feel that I am capable of accomplishing. And I think that's a big difference between men and women. I do think men pursue this. I want to feel capable. I don't care if I'm loved necessarily as much as I've, if I'm made to feel capable and Hey, again, that high trust value, right? Oh, this guy, I trust him with my life. Well, that's the biggest saying uh, from a significant other. I trust this man with my heart. Like that is a, within that context, it's like, I know you're saying, I love you, but what you're really saying is you are the most capable person I could be with, right? Like that's, what's the uplifting. It's I trust you to take care of me, to provide, to do all these sorts of things. You give a man that and the tools to accomplish it, you know, and there's another saying taken from Chris Willicks's podcast, man will crawl through glass for anyone to do that, right? Like I will be there. I will accomplish anything if that's how I'm made to feel. That was probably the biggest takeaway I had is, and you know, when I've gone through some difficult times in my life, getting back to it and, and doing the postmortem, it's why was it so bad? It's like, well, I was made to feel less capable or I felt yeah. less capable in those moments. And that was the bigger issue that I truly suffered from at that point. And that applies to, like you're saying, relationships too. I mean, you have had some tough relationships too. I mean, you've been through a divorce. Yeah. You've been through a divorce. Yeah. That was probably really hard. And a lot of the guys who listen to the podcast have been through the exact same thing and they're trying to come out the other side. Yeah. It's really hard. It, it is. And I think that's, you know, it's something and, you know, I'm, that I look back at and I talked about in the other podcast, it's there's nothing wrong with going through a divorce. Nothing. Heck, you can still be in love with the person that you're going through a divorce. I mean, that's, I think that's something that really sucks in society is people treat these things as, you know, you have to hate this person. I mean, don't get me wrong. I had an incredible divorce attorney, but what I look back at is like, mm, the attorneys definitely make it, you know, it becomes a, a clash. What I wish I could tell myself as I was going through that is you married this person. You love this human being, everything. Yeah. Have you one done everything to make sure that you've met the responsibilities of, am I capable of being in this relationship? And if it's not, it's okay to go. I am not. That is not an indicative of me. That's just the relationship as it is as it currently stands. And if we are not going to work on it, if I'm not going to bring myself to work on it. This person's not going to bring himself to get work on it. Then I need to move on because I am better applied working elsewhere and bringing my full capabilities of love, affection, ability to provide security, whatever 
somewhere else. And that's what I couldn't detach from during it. I mean, I, I was deeply depressed. And that's what I realized is I allowed myself, and this is where lawyers come in, they can make it feel, because that's what they go after. Oh, you were frivolous with money or, oh, you did this or, oh, you did that. They chip away at your capability. So as a man, it's, you know, and your significant other knows you and they know how to go after that too. So it's, no, I know my lens. I know I'm capable. You're doing this for legal reasons. And that's the hard part. It's like anything in life. It's not personal. It's just someone is, knows how to go after ego. I'm not going to hear it. I'm going to move over here and I'm going to occupy this space where I know I am capable. And I am now going to slowly detach from this because I don't want to be with someone that is willing to allow someone to attack me in that way or whatever. And I'm not saying that's necessarily what happened there, but I dissociated severely from my true capabilities and it just spun and got worse and worse and worse. And, you know, breaking it down. And I've said this before, amazing person, right? I adore, I love my ex, but I want to be with someone that views me as capable. And I, and it doesn't exist in that context or that's not what, (laughs) how they see me. I don't want to be there. I don't want to be in that position. Yeah. I mean, it totally breaks down a relationship. A man wants to feel capable, respected, all of these things. Respect and capability. Yeah. Those are, I think, the biggest. Seriously, you give those two things to a man. And the moment you don't feel that as a man, I think that's when it's important to be like, why don't I feel it here? And is it something that's worth pursuing? And I think that's the places men kind of lose their way at times is they will pursue something to the end because they want to feel it. It's, it's, it's the dopamine, right? Like I want to walk around and I want to be the dude that every chick turns her head or every guy, you know, I don't know your preferences turns her head and looks at me and is like, I want to be him. Well, is that realistic? No. But if I start internally looking at it and going, I know my great things. I know what I bring to the table. I suddenly don't care about this as much. And instead, now I just put myself forward and look for someone to be accepting of who I am truthfully. And that brings out this much more innate and deeper connection um, to yourself and to that person. Agree. I think that's why it's so important for men to completely be themselves, put it all out there and be comfortable with who they are. And then they're going to get someone who loves them for who they are, respects all of that. Yeah. So you mentioned depression a little bit ago. I want to focus on that. There are so many men in America right now having a hard time with mental health, depression, a lot more people seeing therapists than ever before. How did you get through the depression and come out on the other end? What's your mental health routine? Like what's important to you to keep your mental health in check? So um, first and foremost, I see a therapist um, that I will be very honest with that. I've never been shy about being like, look, I've, I've talked to a therapist and I take medication, low dose, but it helps a lot. And that took a long time to arrive at that's okay for me. Yeah. You were afraid of the stigma behind that or what, or what was it? Yeah. I think stigma is a big, big problem with it. The other is just feeling like you can't do something. Again, capability, right? I can overcome this. Well, depression is 
deeper than just feeling that, right? So for me, the first thing I I always want to understand these things. So I read books and I've read a ton of neuropsychology books. It doesn't <laughs> doesn't mean I'm a psychologist. It doesn't mean I don't want to see a professional because that's their job, but I want to understand where it's coming from. Yeah. And then the next was, I think, really grasping, well, what do I feel is missing from my life? And what are the things, to your point, what is my mental health hygiene that's going to help me? And for me, a lot of it revolves around that feeling capable. Like if that's my mantra, if, if anything. So do I mentally feel, am I capable of taking on the day and challenges that are going to come on? Am I physically ready? So physical fitness, I mean, 30 minutes of walking is the same as I think I remember it creates as much dopamine as a single dose of pick your, you know, depression medication. So Prozac, whatever. Yes. Yeah. Just move. I mean, like that's the biggest thing. I love that you're saying this because I, <laughs> yep, there you go. Treadmill right behind you. I hammer this home all the time working out, exercising, walking, whatever it is, lifting heavy weights. I think it's it's even more, I mean, it's important for everyone, but I feel like it's so much more important for men even than women. It's important for us all, but like guys get so much mental benefit from being physically active, I think. Physical activity. And then, you know, the other for me is find your support network. Mm-hmm. If you can't talk to your significant other about this, is that significant other really the best person for you? Like your right. family, you know, and I know everyone has different networks and might not have a family. The other for me is looking for things greater than yourself. So you mentioned team service. All, like for me, what I've realized, I've always attracted something greater than myself. Like personal accomplishments important, but the greater accomplishment for me is seeing success on a broad scale. Or in this case, you know, you saw my dogs, it's find those things that make you feel special. So I have two animals that depend on me. So the only time codependence is okay in your life, (laughs) but having animals that do look up to me and are comforting and are loving, and I can mentally challenge myself to train them to take care of them. So it's giving me these little boosts of, oh, there's capability here providing for something and just being passionate about stuff. I mean, I've definitely pursued different things, whether it be photography, art, I'm a terrible at drawing. I discovered that, right? But like little (laughs) things that just let me maybe zone out a little bit and just really enjoy nuanced stuff that lets you get in touch with quote unquote, your inner child, like just learn to be playful. I think so many men nowadays feel, you know, you have these stoic movements and all this stuff. And it's like, yeah, it's good to not overreact in public, but at the same time, constantly sitting here and being like, I am Marcus Aurelius and I will truly never feel emotion towards anything because it's beneath me. Like, no, like it's okay to be in your feels, just know when it's time to communicate it. Always being stoic, always being rigid. I mean, I worked with some of the hardest freaking dudes, true like door knockers. You do not want to meet in a back alley kind of guys behind closed doors had some of the most touching and like I've seen grown men like that cry. It's okay to be like, okay, this is that moment. This is that moment. I have reached my limit. 
and I need to get it out and I need to find a way to express it. And that's, I think, the important thing. And I think that's important in relationships too. How do you actually communicate that stuff in a relationship with others is exceedingly important. Oh yeah. Communication is so important. I wanted to circle back to Fred. Yeah. Fred, who helped you through that really hard time because you were talking about how much your dogs, Bella and Broski, have helped you. I want to circle back to Fred, though. Where is Fred now? Fred is in Maine with Craig and Nora. He is just an incredible animal that's lived an incredible life. And like I said, I highly recommend checking out them. They've they've done so much and so talented. And that dog has just enabled so many people. (laughs) And I think that terrible thing. Such a good story. So I'm going to link to their podcast episodes that they did with you in my show notes as well, because it was really good, good couple of episodes. Uh, this seems like a pretty good place to hear from our sponsors. And now back to the show. I always try to talk about male suicide a little bit in every episode because that's a platform I care a lot about. So I just wanted to remind everyone, you know, if you're going through a hard time, there are numbers you can call. There are things you can do. Get help. See a therapist. Talk to your friends. If you don't have friends, reach out to someone on Reddit. I mean, anything. Just I think it's so important to keep mentally healthy and all of that. So yeah. Well, and I, you know, to expand on that, I think, and I just noticed that one of my questions, like you kind of um, pointed out, like anything that's really helped you along. And, you know, I've been the beneficiary of getting to attend some incredible institutions, the market Marcus Institute for brain health. And this was started by Bernie Marcus, a home Depot put this huge investment into um, the university of Colorado Anschutz medical center. And it's specifically first responders and military um, and pro athletes and um, helping them regain like how to do all these things. And one of the things I found when I was there, um, especially when it comes to suicide and how do you advocate one, um, you know, this will be linked to me. If someone's having, one of your listeners is having a difficult time, shoot me a DM. I'll talk to you. I've, I will always take that time for anybody. Like I just don't, feel that anyone should be feel shut out. I'm going to put that out there right now. Um, yeah, to, agree. Agree. The approach is holistic. I think again, people get so narrow with there's something wrong with me or it's just a medication issue. It's not, it's this holistic approach. And when I was at this um, Marcus Institute for brain health, I literally was put through eye hand coordination um, exercises, balance exercises. So again, kind of connecting back to these, these things we're talking about, um, doing art, reading, talking, um, all these sorts of skills that kind of make up this whole meditation. Um, because when we talk about depression, it's it attacks the whole system. You become less active, you be, yeah. your brain fog. Um, you don't want to move, you are tired suddenly. So Mm -hmm. you have to kind of pick the things. And what I kind of learned is it's exhausting because you're trying to do all this at once in this three week course. And it's amazing, but you're tired the whole time there. 
Um, so for me, my continuing practice for that is find the minute to minute, even if, it, if even if you have to break down to second to second. So if someone's really in despair, you know, and having been someone that has attempted, um, it's tough to even see the next second, but that's the key. It's find the next second. Why do I want to be here for that next second? Because I think so many people are like, oh, life's so overwhelming. And, and then they just go down this hole. It becomes find that thing that gets you to the next second. And then once you find that footing, what's the thing that gets you to the next minute? Break it down to the absolute smallest possible unit of measure that you can focus on and then start zeroing in on that. And then once you kind of get to that minute by minute, hour by hour, find the little victories. You know, I'm super depressed because I can't seem to wake up on time. Okay. Well, then pick a time that you know you can wake up and find that victory. So if it's, I need to take a, a break, you know, I need to take a day off from work and I'm going to say, I'm going to wake up at 11 a.m. tomorrow. At 11 a.m., an alarm's going to go off and I put my feet on the ground. That's a victory. Now you've won something and you just go from there and, and build yeah. in the smallest possible increments and talk. I mean, I think that's the hardest thing um, for anyone is find that person that you can talk to and that you can truly express who you are and how you're feeling. And keep in mind, it's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. So what are the biggest challenges today for a man in America? (laughs) You hear a lot of things about toxic masculinity and, you know, a lot of people being kind of hard on men, I feel like these days in the media. What do you think about being a man today? I think it is infinitely more complicated, yet simple if we just start to look at it. And I think it's funny, my favorite buzzword, toxic masculinity and alpha males or betas and this and that, and, you know, the Andrew Tate effects and all this stuff. And it's like, just stop. The first thing, any dude that goes around says I'm an alpha is not an alpha. You don't have to say you're an alpha if you're an alpha. And and the way we always talk or Sigma or whatever, I don't know. There's so many different, like, people want to like identify with something nowadays. I'm like, stop. It's not about how you identify. It's about who you are. That's what matters. And that's the most important thing. If I have to walk around and attach 9,000 things to identify who I am, well, A, we're never going to have a conversation because I'm going to be listening, listening to this. And B, it's like, okay, great. No, I just see in this case, Kelly and Kelly is talking to me and I see Kelly for who she is or vice versa. Kelly sees Joe or Bob or Frank or whoever. So as a man, I think it really is just boiling down to what we talked about earlier. And the biggest challenge is being in a society that has gone through some very extreme movements that in some ways I think needed to happen, but have also made men quote unquote, and please excuse the expression, gun shy. And men don't know how to act because I don't know how to initiate anymore. There's studies. Women want men to initiate romance, asking them out. Okay, great. But now 80% of men won't approach a woman because they're afraid of being called creepy. That's true. I mean, that's totally true. I see that. 
And I do want men to initiate. I still do, but, but it's hard for them. I know. Yeah. So it's hard. And I think, but there's another side to that. <laughs> then you, I can get on any social media and see these idiots out there being like, yeah, I'm just going to put the Riz out there, whatever it's called, whatever these youngins are. What is that? I'm so I think not... it's flirting. I don't know. I just okay. flirting. And I'm okay. like, yeah, there's a big difference between going up to a, a woman and being respectful and saying, hey, I saw you across the room. I'd really, and by the way, this is advice I had to impart to my youth on the rugby team. It's like, hey, Sidecross Room, I think you're extremely attractive. I really would like to take you out for a drink. Oh, yeah. Ooh, hard, right? Ooh, I but, like that. <laughs> right. But guys want to walk up now and come up with something super creative, pick up. And I think that's where you start seeing these issues of like, okay, masculinity to me is we can talk about polarity, but if we want to get into deeper Eastern philosophical context here, but it's like masculinity is the bedrock. It's that capability, that security, that I don't need to overextend myself and go up to someone and come up with some cheesy pickup line. Cause here's my thing. If that's what a woman wants to hear as a man, I don't want to be with that person. I'm going to be honest, plain spoken and to the point, because that's where I feel comfortable, confident, capable, and I'm giving her respect and she's giving, going to give me respect back in turn. Whereas if I go up and say something that could be construed as disrespectful or could be construed as, I don't know, idiotic, I'm just going to go with it. You're immediately breaking this system. And Women, the feminine energy that exists out there, we'll go with feminine and polarity, is about creativity and art and expression and emotions. That's how Eastern philosophy looks at it. So they're looking for someone that creates a bedrock of foundation stability. And that's Mm -hmm. what I think masculinity is. How can I best provide stability? How can I provide these different structures that allow for that. So someone that is in feminine energy can express themselves in a way that allows them to feel creative and artistic and beautiful Mm -hmm. and emotionally available. And that does not come. And I think that's where society nowadays has just gone off the rails is men are trying to figure it out and they're getting away from what their true selves are because it's I need to navigate how people identify and this and that. It's like, you can be respectful to that by just seeing someone for who they are and then creating the strong foundation of who you are, knowing that you're capable, that you deserve respect and deserving respect means giving respect. It does not mean I get respect just because of who I am. It's I respect, I am respectful and in turn receive respect. I prove my capabilities, but I know what I'm already capable of. And I'm just going to be secure with that. Yes. And if I show up with those three things, you're fine. That confidence. Confidence. Understanding who you are. Quiet confidence. Yes. Not arrogance, not boastfulness. You know, understanding who you are at your core, what you're comfortable with, the kind of person you are, and being good with that. Yeah. And that's Okay. Yeah, that is okay. Back to what you said. There's this analogy, and I'm going to get it wrong, I'm sure, but I I found it really interesting. It's the bowl and the water. The man should be the bowl, 
the strong, sturdy bowl for the woman to be more emotional and creative and all of that. She's the the movement. The man is the bowl. I don't know. I I probably got that way wrong, but something like that anyway. So yeah. <laughs> also, um, like you see all these young guys now, even just like asking a girl to prom or something is this huge thing. It's almost like a proposal. Like it does not have to be like that. It can be a simple, hey, you're great. I think you're awesome. Let's go for a drink or something like that. Well, it's, uh, I think it's because nowadays people want it for the gram or TikTok or whatever. Again, yeah. they see this stuff and I think that's the issue. Everyone thinks you have to go so over the top for it to matter. And I think as a society, and this maps, we have lost sight of the simple things that make life beautiful. And yeah. it's easy to forget being in the moment, it's easy to forget how do we simply communicate. I think you made a good point earlier, communication. And plain speak is okay. I think so many people nowadays want it to be this over-the-top or grandiose, and it's like, this is low-level narcissism. Like, who cares? Yeah. Yeah. Or or they take it as mean. Or they take it as mean. Like you're being blunt, like, oh, you can't say that. You're too blunt. You have to sugarcoat everything and walk on eggshells. But that's, we're too sensitive, I think. I think sometimes, yeah. And I, and if someone reacts to something you say, yeah, it's probably them being too sensitive. Being triggered by. But it's also on you. Like, I can observe, I can observe this. I know that. How can I best, I was having this conversation the other day, which is like tone matters, how things are delivered. It's okay to be blunt, but if I'm like, give me that versus could I please have something? Those two things, yes, they relay the same thing, but very different connotation and how it'll probably be received, right? Yeah, say it with kindness, but yeah. Respect. It's always, to me, it always comes down to the thing. I can initiate conversation or act in a way that is respectful to those around me and I deserve respect back. And that's, I think the way you should act. I think we get so hung up again on, are you this or are you that or identity and this? And it's like, how about I'm just respectful and I expect to be treated in respect. You know, I expect respect in return. So, yeah. Well, I am so glad you're here, Joe. How are you feeling these days? Do you still have issues from the TBI or are you pretty good? What's happening with your health? <laughs> there's good days, there's bad days. You know, it's something I have to keep working on. Uh, memory, there's, like I said, there's ongoing depression. There's still, there's still things that have to be dealt with, but it doesn't feel overwhelming anymore. I think being able to come on to something like this and talk openly and know that there's others going through similar things is important. And also being able to hear people and them know that is also good. I think, you know, there's always more to be done. I'm constantly trying to teach myself to learn and expand and, and, challenge myself. I think those are important features of any um, anything you go through to grow. And to me, that's how I deal with anything that is ongoing is like, okay, it's another challenge. I know I'm capable of dealing with this challenge. I know that I can get through it. 
I just need to figure out the best plan of attack. And it's funny when you strategize that way, it helps break things down again into their most basic form. And when they're in there, you can just put them in boxes and know that, okay, I can't split my attention across all of these. Cause then it's a half-assed effort across all of these. It's yeah. what's the most serious, let me order these now. And I'm going to deal with this. Then I'm going to deal with this. Then I'm going to deal with this and I'm going to deal with this. And then all the noise going on around outside me, work, friends, people communicate it. Be willing to talk to individuals and go, Hey, you know, kind of just going through something right now. I'm dealing with this. So if I, if I seem a little, you know, just be open. I think people are very, very receptive to that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the show and telling your story. I know it's not always easy to talk about this stuff, but it's good to get it out. People want to hear it. It helps a lot of people. So thank you so much. Well, no, thank you. Um, Keep doing the good work. It's been a delightful podcast to do and listen to. Thank you. And I'm really, really excited that uh, I got to share my story today and hopefully it helps others out there. So, and really, I appreciate getting to come on here and you using your platform for this. I think there's a lot of, a lot of good out there to be done. And a lot of men that just, they're trying to figure things out and they just need to know that they are capable and that they are these incredible human beings and it's there for them and they'll get there. I love that. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks. So, and go Hawkeyes. Oh yeah. For, <laughs> yeah. For all those Iowans out there. Thank you so much. Hey guys, that was an awesome show. Have a great week, everyone. See you, Kelly. Bye. Manthropology is written, produced, and hosted by Kelly Brink. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe to our podcast and leave a five-star rating and review. Your feedback helps us improve and reach more listeners like you. You can stay updated on all things Manthropology by following us on Instagram at ManthropologyPod. Questions? Email us at info at ManthropologyPod.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week on Manthropology.